Northwestern Medicine, relentless in their pursuit of better health care. Learn more at nm.org slash better. Our weekly visit with Dr. Kevin Most, Chief Medical Officer, Central DuPage Hospital. Good morning to you, Dr. Most, and welcome. Nice to have you with us. Did you have a good week uh, out with your golf buddies? Yes, I did, Dean. It was. It was a, it was a fun week, so we really enjoyed it and uh, get to see some guys once or twice a year, and it's a good opportunity to catch up. So it was a good week. Yeah, I hope you had some air-conditioned uh, tents and things to uh, enjoy those reunions. You had, you had yourself a hot week last week. Yeah, Saturday and Sunday were really hot, and um, fortunately, you know, like I said earlier, you know, it, it's the players are one thing. They're used to this. They can walk six miles in these 90-degree. But you got to think about the caddies, some of who are older, carrying a 45-pound bag, walking seven miles. Yeah. It's, uh, those are the ones I get concerned about. Yeah, well, I'm glad uh, it all worked out okay and uh, without incident. Uh, I just want to get a, a just a quick update on where we are with this new variant of uh, COVID that we've talked about the past few weeks. I've had more people this week ask me about uh, vaccines that, uh, you know, where they are with vaccines and what they should be doing and what's the status of this new vaccine that uh, you'd mentioned is going to be coming out in September, which now is less than a week away. Yeah, so if you were watching the news this week, you did see about another new variant. And, you know, the... It's nice that we're keeping people informed, but I don't want them to be overly concerned and worried. It's just that we have a much closer eye on how we're looking at these. So you probably have all heard about the BA 2.86, and we're like, okay, that's the newest variant. You have to remember, there's only been 10 identified cases worldwide, so this is nothing to get overly concerned about. The XBB strain is still the predominant strain here, and that's what the vaccine is going to be uh, designed to attack here in just a couple weeks, uh, expected to be released in mid-September. All right, so uh, folks that are, I mean, we'll open up the phone lines for uh, questions, but, you know, maybe we can uh, answer many of those questions now. Uh, people, if, if people are due for vaccines, they probably should wait until this new vaccine is available so they would be the most up-to-date, Right. Correct. Correct. Yeah. You know, the booster that we uh, released almost uh, about a year ago right now, you know, we kept it to one. And then in the spring after the UK and Canada said, hey, we need a second booster because we know these vaccines that they wane a little bit. So they okayed it for a second. So many people, if you haven't gotten a second booster, you're technically up for one. You could get one. But being this close to the boot, the fall booster, I would say hold off on that one. That that vaccine is not even going to be made anymore. And the XBB vaccine, the booster vaccine that will be available in September here, is going to be the one that you're going to want to get. So certainly anybody who's on the fence right now, here we are. It's going to be the first, you know, going into Labor Day weekend. It's really just two weeks away, and you'll be able to get the appropriate vaccine that's the most up-to-date. I wanted to also ask you about this new test, which is available for consumers for Alzheimer's. I believe that this is the first time such a thing is uh, being made available for consumers to use, right? It is. And this is really interesting. 
and I don't want to say controversial, but we all have to be a little bit careful with it. You know, normally when you go to a doctor's office, he's going to say, okay, this is the test I want you to have. I want to check your hemoglobin A1C for diabetes. I want to check your cholesterol. But this is a test that you're going to be able to get and just go online, essentially, and get it, you know, by yourself without a doctor's order. So you would go online, and then they would tell you the draw station that you would go to. They would uh, draw your blood. They would run the test, and then the results would be shared with you. So it's this, you know, direct-to-consumer testing that we're going to start to see more and more of. Think about even with COVID testing, how we were testing COVID at home before we used to have to go to hospitals or doctor's offices. So it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out. And if it allows us to identify people with Alzheimer's a little bit earlier, and now that we have some treatments for it or treatment options, can we slow the progression of this disease and identify more people who have the illness earlier so that we have more treatment options? Who are the people that uh, should be concerned about this and possibly getting tested? If you've if you've had a family history of Alzheimer's, uh, should you be in line for that? Uh, if you yeah. are, you know, we we talked about this before. Uh, you know, we, we're all forgetting things a little more, especially as we get older. Uh, we forget things. I mean, if you feel like you're overly forgetful, should you be doing this? Who who are the people? What are what are signs that you should be tested for this? Yeah. So if you have mild cognitive deficits um, or history of Alzheimer's, certainly is would be in the family would be a good idea. I mean, and again, the test is not ideal. We're still finding out more about the test. But anybody who is concerned to a point of saying, you know what, uh, dad is starting to slow down and he's starting to forget things and he didn't remember how to get to a certain. Those are the individuals that say, hey, you know what, let's get this blood test done. And now at least you have one data point that you can go back to the doctor with and say, hey, here's what's going on right now. Here's his symptoms. And here's the results of his blood test. So I look at it and say, you know, we're going to have false positives, false negatives. Certainly, it's the first time this test has been made. But anywhere we can increase the awareness of it and consider that we're going to have a blood test that may identify patients earlier knowing that we have these drugs in the pipeline that could slow the progression of the illness. That's going to be the home run there. Early identification, early treatment, slow the progression. Yeah, well, that was going to be my next question. So, you you know, you do find out that uh, you, uh, you know, may have Alzheimer's, uh, but there is no cure for it. There, you know, there there's nothing. But we have uh, made some inroads, haven't we, of early treatment in the last six or eight months? Yeah, actually, just in the last, what, three months. I mean, it was just probably maybe a month ago we talked about Lakembi. You know, this drug that when given early on in the illness has shown to slow the progression of, of the illness by you know, blocking this beta amyloid. And that's what the blood test is looking at. The blood test is saying, well, what's the marker? The marker for Alzheimer's is beta amyloid. So they're looking for beta amyloid in a ratio against other proteins in your body for this blood test. So... Like you said, though, if we can find individuals who have early onset Alzheimer's and get them on this medication, we're extending the quality of their life and potentially the quantity of their life, but certainly the quality of their life. Uh, also, uh, there are new tools available to identify Parkinson's disease uh, much sooner than had been pre- you know, the previous uh, protocol with this, uh, something that's called Oc- Oculomics? Is, am I saying that right? Oculomics? Yep. Yep. 
So it's interesting when we talk about the eye, and we we often say it's a window to the body. It's the one opportunity a doctor can look into essentially what's going on in the, the vascular system and the nervous system in your body. Because when they take that little flashlight and they get really up close to your eyes, or when you have that what they call slit lamp exam at the doctor's office, we're looking at the back of your eye and we're looking for changes that show diabetes, that show macular degeneration, that show retinal issues. But what they're finding now is they did a big study where they looked at people who had Parkinson's and people who did not have Parkinson's and compared the OCT, the optical coherence tomography, so kind of like a, it's a scan, and they found indicators going, well, wait a second, we see these indicators only in Parkinson's patients not in non-Parkinson's patients. So when you have something like that, and they were identifying as they looked back at the data using artificial intelligence, they looked back seven years before people had symptoms to say, you know what, they had the changes in the back of their eye that we noticed that had we known before, we could have predicted that within five to seven years they are going to have Parkinson's, which again is going to give us that early acknowledgement of it allow people to change their lifestyle, allow them to get on medications, allow them to really start to plan on things. You know, so a couple major illnesses where we really don't have a lot to work with, anything we can do to identify them earlier is going to allow for more treatment options and really extension of, of quality of life. Yeah, that's uh, that's the issue, uh, you know, with all of these things. You get tested, but then what? You know, you find out that you do have this or that, uh, and and then what happens? Uh, it does sl- slowing the progression of the disease down. And in the case of Parkinson's, is is that where we are with this right now? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> Parkinson's is a difficult one because some of the medications we use for Parkinson's, people build up a tolerance for them to a point where they don't work. We have other things for Parkinson's where we put little neurotransmitters in their brain and just give them little shocks into their brain that take away their tremors. But certainly, I think probably the big thing here is if we identify early, then we can now start to watch the progression using this test, which could be done every year or two years, and really start to say, if we tried this drug, does it slow the progression? Because what we've had in the past, we've waited till people have had symptoms. And now we say, now we're going to try to take your symptoms away whether it's the tremor of Parkinson's or whether it's the cognitive deficit of dementia, if we know early and we can slow any of the progression based on identifying somebody who is going to end up with this disease years down the road, boy, that's where we're really going to make an impact. Now, with uh, both of these tests for the Alzheimer's and the Parkinson's, uh, you know, if you go to your physician and say, I heard them talking on the radio about this or that, are these uh, testing uh, protocols uh, readily available, and are insurance companies uh, accepting uh, responsibility to pay for it? Yeah. So for the Parkinson's test, which is done by an ophthalmologist, <clears throat> uh, it's anywhere from sixty to one hundred twenty-five dollars. Some insurances pay, some don't. Um, but it is at the the. the Great clinics. Uh, we're very fortunate in the western suburbs to have Wheaton Eye Clinic, a large uh, ophthalmology clinic, and, and they do this test on a regular basis. Um, as far as the, the, uh, the test for Alzheimer's, it's interesting. You can go online right now and put in your zip code, and it will tell you 
where to go to get your blood drawn to get the test done. It's being done by a company called Quest Diagnostics. So if you Google Quest Diagnostics uh, Alzheimer's blood test, you will they'll, they'll pop up and say, enter your zip code. Enter your zip code, it'll say, Here, here's where you can go. Those are out of pocket. That test hasn't been 100% proved, proven to be as accurate as they would want it to, so you're not seeing insurance companies pay for that right now. In the future, again, as they build more data, you'll probably see them start to approve that test as well. Let's get some calls for Dr. Kevin Most after a quick break. 312-981-7200. 950. Dean Richards, Sunday morning, WGM, with Dr. Kevin Most, Chief Medical Officer, Central DuPage Hospital, and Frida on the phone line at 312-981-7200. Frida, you're on WGM. Oh, thank you, Dean. Uh, Dr. Most, I have an 87-year-old brother who has a history of anxiety and panic attacks, and he's now been living in a nursing home, and I'm finding that during the late afternoon and evening, he's even more uh, confused. Uh, He's clearer in the mornings. What is sundowner syndrome, and is there medication to slow up the process? I was just going to say, as you're you're saying that, I'm like, oh, he's sundowning. He has sundowner syndrome, and that's the unfortunate thing because the um, ability to kind of keep your circadian rhythm for sunlight and sunset and when we – fall asleep and when we kind of get towards our being groggy at the right time. But what really we see is that in these individuals, it becomes earlier in the day and they get mood swings. Like you said, they get anxiety, they get energy surge, they can get confusion. So it, they kind of will get up and pace and rock. And we don't really know why, what the triggers are. For many of them, we think it's because the lights are dimmer. So sometimes keeping those lights a little bit brighter And sometimes it's really going to try to minimize the triggers that cause that. So if you um, uh, normally do X, Y, and Z and you take that away, they're going to sundown for many reasons. So nutritional, there are some things, but you really want to maintain their normal standards and their structured activities so that they don't get stressed. And that's what usually happens. And then also simplifying their surroundings and their, you know, what's around them. You'd want to minimize the confusion that they may have. So it's a very difficult thing. And sometimes, unfortunately, we go to, well, let's just give medication because that's the easy way. When, in fact, changing the environment, getting them into a validating and distracting place where you will go and say, okay, let's go do this activity where versus it's like, here, have them take this medicine and it'll get better. So it's a very difficult thing. It's very common in people in the hospital um, after a couple of days in the hospital and they're in it in a different environment. But unfortunately, there's not a lot of things that we can do. We try music therapy. We try, again, distractions, trying to keep them active. Um, but it's a very difficult thing, especially in nursing homes, where sometimes the staffing is not as robust as it is in the hospital. Yeah. Frida, good luck with all of that. Thank you for the call. Nick, you're next on WGN. Hello. Yeah, thank you. You have a great show always. Thank you. Um, I want to ask the doctor that with the coronavirus uh, uh, medicines that they came out with, it, usually there's a few years of trial periods, like seven, eight, nine years to see with more and more people that they test on to see how it's working out and see what adverse effects are out there. Uh, 
<clears throat> this time uh, they had, to, of course, come out with it pretty much and put it just out into the public. So we've had a few years. Uh, does the doctor see any pattern like these people who've had problems with their hearts, some of them young people? Is it because they're athletes and they should have taken it easy uh, instead of still continuing their strenuous uh, sports? Or, you know, could he comment on it? And that's it. Thank you. Are we able to make yeah, any Nick, think, conclusions yeah, Nick, about you, side you effects? Kinda, yeah, you kind of run two things together there, so I'll try to kind of separate them a little bit. And certainly, if you think about how quickly Paxlovid and how quickly Remdesivir came to market, it's way outside of what the normal is. We would have had large studies, would have, but in the heat of the moment, we needed to do that, and the FDA was as safe as they possibly could to make sure that they were going to put a medication out there that worked, and we saw that it did. Now, we have seen rebound cases with Paxlovid, so we've seen patients who take Paxlovid, they get better, boy, they're done, and, you know, a week, two weeks later, they have symptoms back. So the rebound effect there. But it's interesting. We even see that with antibiotics, with infections. You know, I think my pneumonia is cleared up. I take my course of antibiotics, and unfortunately, it can come back. So you have to remember that we're treating an infectious process, and we're going to try to make sure that we don't have the patient on the medication too long. We're going to have it on an appropriate length of time so that the uh, illness is gone. So as we get more and more data on Paxlovid, what's going to happen? We're probably going to see some changes as far as how long and how often. Now, as far as the other part about the heart and that, got to remember that the Paxlovid is not damaging the heart. What's damaging the heart is the virus and the inflammation from the virus. So individuals with long COVID, as we talked last week or the week before, you know, we're starting to see more long COVID cases and symptoms come up well after the infection. So we're still trying to get our arms around that. But the medications, the Paxlovid, the Remdesivir, the vaccine, those really are fighting the infection. They're not causing any problems in the lungs or heart. Um, So really, we need to make sure we understand what the medications are for, what the vaccines are for, and what's the damage that the virus is doing if we don't treat it. You know, I've always wondered about with uh, really any kind of medication, antibiotics or COVID vaccine or whatever, I, I assume a standard dose is given to everybody for a vaccine, for example. But as you were saying, with the course of uh, antibiotics, uh, it does a, uh, you know, does an obese person take as much as a petite person or does the obese person need more because their metabolism, the metabolism is bigger? Correct. So it's interesting. You know, we do that with pediatrics, right? It, all of our pediatric medicines, I shouldn't say all, but almost all of them are weight-based. So as we grow, we get to a point of being an adult, and we know that those are not going to change that much whether the person weighs, you know, 200 pounds or weighs 250 pounds. What we're probably more concerned about in those patients is tell me what their renal function is. In other words, how well do their kidneys work and how well does their liver work? Because that's often where these drugs are broken down. So we'll make adjustments based on their kidney function Mm. versus based on their weight. There are a couple that we will use weight-based, and there's a couple that we actually test throughout the course of the treatment to make sure that the antibiotic is hitting an appropriate level. But that's just a few drugs and mainly on the inpatient in the hospital setting. As always, uh, great information. Always appreciate you visiting with us on Sunday morning. Dr. Kevin Most, Chief Medical Officer, Central DuPage Hospital. Have a great day, Kev. Thank you. You got it, Dean. Talk. We'll talk soon. Thanks.